0: Well, hey, everybody, welcome to The Crossing today, and thank you for the privilege of coming into your homes. A few weeks ago, Darla and I went to Kansas to clean out her childhood home. Her parents bought their farm 61 years ago and made it a home over all of these years. They raised five daughters. They took in foster kids. They opened up their house for missionaries to live in. And my kids have incredible memories of being on that farm over Christmas break and summer vacations. Their grandpa would take them horseback riding or water skiing behind his boat. One Christmas, we took our kids to Wichita and he took all of the kids out snow sledding behind his tractor, and my daughter, Corey fell off, and she had a big scrape across her face in all of the family pictures that year. Well, we just sold the house just a few days ago, so all of Darla's sisters and their husbands met at the house, and we went through 60 years worth of belongings and memories and divided all of them up. Darla's dad was a pilot in the Navy back in the 50s, and he used to take off and land on aircraft carriers. We found his flight jacket tucked away in the basement. Her grandpa was a mail carrier during the Great Depression, and he had this cabinet of post office boxes that he had saved that dated back a 100 years. We rented a minivan, and we drove it across the country back home with a few special things. And we had a very unique opportunity to look at her parents' life from this perspective, to look at 60 years of highs and lows, celebrations and hardships, and looking at their life from this perspective, we could see God's hand through each of those seasons. But when we're going through some of those seasons ourselves, We have moments when our faith is replaced with fear. We have it all figured out. We think if God would just do blank, whatever it is, it would all work out. Is it possible that you have underestimated the power of God in your life? Well, we've been walking through the life of Jesus in this series that we've called Marked which is based on the gospel of Mark. And today, we pick up the storyline on the Tuesday before Jesus is crucified. And there's three groups of political and religious leaders who approach Jesus to try to trap him by his words. If they can get the crowds to turn against him, then they can finally arrest him. Well, the first group is the Pharisees. This is the religious group that we are most familiar with. They required a strict adherence to the ritual law and to all of the traditions. They were hostile to the teachings of Jesus because they thought Jesus was compromising their interpretation of the law. The second group, it's a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were an influential Jewish sect that denied the existence of the spirit world and the possibility of the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that when you died, that was it. The third group, it's a group called the Herodians. Theologically, they were in agreement with the Sadducees, but politically, they were pro Herod. They believed that the road to peace and prosperity was to align with the Roman government. So they supported the corrupt kings who ruled over Israel. And these three groups hated each other, but they had one thing in common. They hated Jesus more. Jesus represented a threat to them, and now they all agree they need to get rid of Jesus. So we're going to pick up this account in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. This is what it says. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. This is probably the only time the Pharisees and the Herodians came together for anything. But if they can get Jesus to discredit himself in front of the people, then they'll have a reason to arrest him. Says that they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They come to Jesus and they start trying to butter him up. Jesus, we know you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by people of money or power. You teach God's truth. Jesus, you the man. Well, here's their question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Now, the imperial tax, this was a tax that was imposed on every Jewish man, woman, and child who was not a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay this tax. And the Jewish people hated this tax because it was imposed on them when Rome annexed Judea as one of their provinces in 6 BC. It was a reminder that they were under Roman oppression. Now, this is a trick question. Because if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes... The people will love him, but the Herodians will report to Herod what was said, and he will be arrested and executed. But if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then the people will turn away from him and rebel against him. So these two groups, they think they've got him. They think that they have Jesus backed into a corner. It says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus knows that they're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. He says, show me the denarius. This is where we get the phrase, show me the money. No, not really. I'm just making that up. A denarius was a daily wage of a worker And this is the coin that was used to pay the imperial tax. Now, I bought one of these exact coins on a market in the streets of Jerusalem. This is a picture of it right here. It has the image of of Tiberius Caesar. And around it is inscribed the words, Son of the Divine Augustus, which interpreted means Son of God. And the Jews considered this a graven image, which was against one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is you shall not make or have an image of any kind. Everything about this coin right here, it was offensive to the Jewish people. It goes on, it says, they brought the coin, which means that they had one with them. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus is so brilliant. This is is a drop the mic moment that they not only have one of these graven images in their pocket, they have it at the temple of God. These rule keeping religious leaders have something in their pocket that is considered against the Ten Commandments, to break the Ten Commandments. Jesus has completely humiliated them. This is game over. Jesus wins. But Jesus is not done. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If you owe a tax, you pay for it. But give to God what is God's. You be generous with God. That, that you honor God with your money. Everyone is amazed by Jesus. But then there's a second group that comes up. It says, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see, they came to him, with a question. The Sadducees, they were wealthy, influential leaders, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't. They believed that you lived and you died, and that was the end. So they come up with this hypothetical scenario. They said, Jesus, now suppose there are seven brothers, and a woman marries the first brother, and he dies. So she marries the second brother, which was part of their tradition. It was part of the law. And he dies all the way down the line until the wife finally dies. Now in the resurrection, whose wife will she be since she was married to all seven brothers? Now, here's what they're doing. They're trying to show how ridiculous the resurrection sounded. They have this scenario that they think will trap Jesus. Because Jesus taught that not only would he have a resurrection, people didn't understand that, but that you and I will have a resurrection one day as well. That there is life after this life. Jesus taught this very plainly. It says, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? This is so offensive to them. Because these are the guys who studied the scriptures for a living. They think because they don't have an answer, there must not be an answer. And Jesus says, you have underestimated the power of God. He goes on. He says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying that you become an angel when you die. I mean, that's what people say at a funeral. You know, now they're an angel watching over us. No, they're not. We don't become angels when we die. Jesus is illustrating marriage. He says that there is no marriage in heaven. Now, if you're unhappily married, this might be good news for you. If you're happily married... You may not like this verse at all. And let me just point out that there are some religions that teach that when you go to heaven that you will be sealed in marriage. Jesus says very clearly that is not the case, that we will know our loved ones, but Jesus says there is no marriage in heaven. But he's not done. He will use a verb tense to blast a whole In their thinking, he says now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? See, what Jesus does here is so brilliant. He takes one of the most familiar verses in the whole entire Old Testament and makes an argument for the resurrection. And he quotes this passage that comes out of Exodus, where God calls Moses from the burning bush, and God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the present tense. So Jesus says this, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, you are badly mistaken that they are living even though they died. Now there's one more guy with one more question. And here's what happens. It says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. Now, most likely this guy is a Pharisee and he loves it that Jesus just blew up the Sadducees. So he loves it that Jesus had given a good answer and he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is a good question because there are 613 commands in the Old Testament law. Of all of those... He asks, which is the most important? Now, everybody in the crowd knew the answer to this question because this was the standard Sunday school answer to the question. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that this guy is trying to test Jesus with this question. See, this is is not the lawyer's real question, this teacher of the law, that there is a question behind the question. As soon as Jesus answers, he's going to give Jesus a zinger that will discredit him. Jesus starts off with the answer that everybody knows, and it's this right here, that most of the people would have been mouthing along with Jesus, that the most important one he answered is this. It's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That everyone can say this along with Jesus. But before this lawyer can get his next question in, Jesus is going to take it one step further. He says the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. And now look what he says. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus is the first person in recorded history that took this verse from Deuteronomy, which has to do with loving God, and this verse from Leviticus that has to do with loving people, and he puts them together in this way. And this signaled a very important shift when it came to religion. Jesus was shifting from a vertical position to a horizontal position. That in the religious world that Jesus lived, and perhaps the religious world that you were raised in, a person could love God and treat people poorly. And Jesus will sum up the entire Old Testament into two commands love God and love people. In fact, Jesus would define the way that you love God. It's by loving other people. Perhaps the way that you grew up was that a person could claim to be good with God and mistreat other people. And so me and and God, we're good. I just don't like that group of people. See, this speaks to where we are as a country right now. Like it or not, Our country has a long history of racism. We've seen police brutality from a few bad cops and violence towards good cops and people of a different color. And almost every one of these people would say, well, me and God, we're good. Jesus tells us that you can't separate these two things. You can't be good with God and hate your neighbor. It doesn't work like that. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Jesus says even people who don't believe in God, they're nice to their own people. The answer to the racism and violence that is happening in our country is to show our love for God by the way we love those who are different than us. And let me just push a few of you a little bit further. Let me just get uncomfortable with you for just a minute. To those who don't think that there's a problem, and some of you have sent me notes saying this, that you don't think there is a real problem. If that's you... You probably need to build a bridge with someone who is not like you and does not experience the world like you because you might learn something. To love God is to love people. And then here's how this passage ends it says, From then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I guess not because they were afraid they were going to be embarrassed, just like Jesus had humiliated all the rest of them. Let me just try to pull this all back together. Let me just try to to bring this home, because I think there is a huge application for all of us in this passage. Because if we aren't careful, we can do the same thing that these groups of religious leaders did. There are times that we think we have it all figured out, that we have the answers. And so we tell God, God, I either need you to do A or I need you to do B. And we've got it all figured out. And if God doesn't do A or B, if he doesn't do what we think that he should do, then we think that God can't be trusted. Or we're in a circumstance that seems impossible. So therefore, God is not there. And it becomes this barrier to our faith. But the power of God is that he can make a way when there seems to be no way. Perhaps you have made God small because you don't understand something. You have concluded that he doesn't exist because you can't explain something. You think that he doesn't care because he hasn't done what you think that he ought to do. So let me just just ask this question. It's this right here. Is it possible that you have underestimated the power of God? Is it possible that you have underestimated the power of God in your life? because you come up with some scenario that that you think that God is not present in or that God should have done differently. And so you come up with this scenario and go, see, God can't be trusted. See, Jesus isn't who he said that he was. Well, I wanna talk to two groups of people right now. First, I wanna talk to those of you who are followers of Christ. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. You've submitted your will to God's will. Is it possible that you have underestimated the power of God in your life? Maybe you're dealing with a situation right now that just seems impossible. I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I know I know you're dealing with something. All of us are. The Apostle Paul tells us that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. That means that you have the power of God to demolish strongholds. You have the power of God to persevere through whatever you are carrying right now. You have the power of God to love the person that seems unlovable. Is it possible that in your mind you've diminished God and have underestimated His power in your life? God can make a way when there seems to be no way. There's a second group I want to talk to. It's those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. And maybe you have a reason. Maybe you have a story. Maybe there's something in your past. Maybe it's something that God didn't do that you thought that He should do. But you're open. Jesus said that he came to bring life and life to the full. And let me just tell you right now, I can tell you from personal experience, I can introduce you to hundreds of other people who would tell you the same thing, that true life is only found in Jesus. And if you're chasing after all kinds of other things, you are not going to find true life. It's only found in him. And I wanna give you an opportunity to finally surrender your life to Jesus because he came to give his life for you. It's why baptism is so powerful because baptism, it represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It represents you dying to your old self, washing away all of your sins and rising up out of the water as a brand new person. God has a plan for you. And you will never know what your life could have been until you hand it over to the one who created it in the first place. So I want to pray with you right now. Let's just bow together in prayer. God, we come to you. God, we thank you for just this incredible scripture word. Maybe so many of us just find ourselves. We think we have this scenario in our life that is gonna throw you off the throne, that's gonna prove that Jesus isn't really who he said that he is. God, I pray that you would begin to take some of these walls down and these barriers in us. God, that as you said, that you are for us. You are for us. God, I wanna pray for those who are ready to take a first step with Jesus. They're ready to surrender their lives to him. And so, God, we do that right now. God, we submit to you. We submit our lives to you. We make Jesus the Lord of our life. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.